1662 BCP Proper's podcast. My name is Clayton Hutchins. I'm the vicar of Holy Cross Anglican Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Joined with me today, as always, by the Reverend Stephen Wedgworth. Stephen is the rector of Christ Church South Bend in South Bend, Indiana. Stephen, how are you doing today? Doing great, Clayton. Good to be back with you. Yeah, likewise. We're getting uh, into the the latter part of Trinity season, so just a few more Trinity uh, uh, season Sundays left before we start back at Advent once more, and um, I'm looking forward to it. I've really enjoyed Trinity season um, so far. I've I, I've seen um, so much more in the readings and the connections than I've seen in previous years, thanks to our our consideration of these things. But I'm yeah, also looking forward to getting back to Advent again. Yeah, um, no, it's been really interesting. Um, no, I do think I was I was looking at my year long spreadsheet even today. I think I have it correctly though that this season uh, we will do all 25 Sundays in Trinity. Oh. So, you know, each year is slightly different. Um, Some years you don't Mm -hmm. do all 25, but I think this year we'll hit all 25. Great. None left out. Um, Yeah, I I guess that means this would have been a year we didn't get all the Epiphany ones then, right? Right, yeah. Epiphany, you know, shortens and expands, Trinity matches. Um, So, yeah, it wasn't, it was a shorter Epiphany. Um, And I think next year also will be pretty short because um, Ash Wednesday is on Valentine's Day, February 14th. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, Easter is sooner. Um, Yeah, yeah, I knew that. So, okay, well, one day we'll have commentary on all the Epiphany ones, but at least we get all Trinity this year. So, but this is the 17th Sunday after Trinity. And uh, we have a shorter collect for this week, so we can kind of talk about what that means or implies. Usually we use the collect to kind of establish the themes for everything, but it's one means among others. But let's begin with the collect, and then we'll proceed from there. Lord, we pray thee that thy grace may always prevent and follow us, and make us continually to be given to all good works. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Yeah, so Stephen, I'll ask you what you think about this collect. You know, I've already mentioned it's a bit shorter than uh, what we're used to. Um, so, but I still think there are things here to notice. And, and one thing I'll say before I, you know, hand it off to you is I do notice again that word continually uh, being used, which there's been emphasis the past few Sundays on, you know, perpetual mercy. And, um, well, I forget the one from two Sundays ago like continual pity. So we do uh, mm-hmm. have a, a, a similar theme in the sense of, you know, a continuity being brought up. But yeah, what else should we see? Yeah. So as you say, this is a shorter collect and you might say that it's uh, a general collect, sort of all purpose, because uh, what I see, the main idea here is the call for us to walk according to good works. Uh, and then the teaching that we can only do that by God's grace. So uh, a Trinity theme that you might could apply throughout the season, uh, sanctification, but sanctification only by God's grace. Uh, but the important words that would need to be talked about, I think, would be uh, prevent. You know, what's going on here with grace preventing you um, and then uh, grace following you. And so preventing and following grace combined together is continual. Um, Anglicans who've been you know, play, play, uh, sticking around, listening to our talks, who've read other Anglican books, they know the answer. What does preventing grace mean? But uh, for others who haven't encountered that, um, this is an older meaning of prevent. It's more like what you would hear in theology, prevenient. Uh, the vent is connected to um, uh, coming, so uh intervene, that kind of idea, prevene, uh, prevent. So to come before, to go before. And um, the sense of we use prevent today, we, we actually have that idea to go before, but we mean it as like to to block, to stop, to get in the mm-hmm. way. <laughs> so, uh, but if grace is doing it, um, it's only blocking bad things, and yeah. it's enabling us to do good things. So, so that's what prevent means. Uh, we need God's grace to go before us always, um, and we need it to follow us. 
So that's important. We don't only start with it. Um, sometimes uh, more Calvinistic critics of that concept, prevenient grace, uh, they'll say, well, it, it's just a grace that gets you started. But then you take over, and it's sort of a synergistic human process after that. So this collect would be helpful to rebut that, say, no, no, we have to have prevening grace, but then we also have to have grace following us. And that combination of before and after is what makes us uh, continually given to good works. Yeah. Given in the sense of, I think, devoted to... Um, or inclined toward in a habitual way, I think is yes. the, the meaning there. Yeah, when you were talking about preventing and following, my mind, of course, went to the 39 Articles, Article 10 of, of Free Will, which says that, uh, you know, the condition of man after the fall of Adam is such that he cannot turn and prepare himself by his own natural strength and good works to faith and calling on God. Wherefore, we have no power to do good works pleasant and acceptable to God, without the grace of God, by Christ preventing us, that we may have a good will, and working with us when we have that good will. So mm. there you have the idea of prevenient grace stated in that context of uh, kind of the Pelagian error. Um, we do need the grace of God going before that we may have a good will in the first place. And then once we are given that good will, we still need that grace of God working with us, like sustaining us. And there's another prayer that comes to mind somewhere in the BCP uh, where it says, all our good works begun, ended, and continued in thee. Yes. Does that sound familiar? Is that a communion collect, yeah. I think? Or? Um, yeah, I think that it's um, one of the post-communion prayers yeah. towards the end. I'd have to double check that. You know, there's yeah, about five so. or six that are optional ones, um, but that sounds right. Yeah. So you have multiple places, though, that, that really kind of emphasize by these kind of metaphors of going before, following after, the idea of we don't just need the grace to, to get us started, but to keep us going and bring us to the, to, to the completed state. Yeah. And so this collect, as we said, it, you can see it as sort of general because it's um, grace for godly living. But uh, we'll notice that tying into the various readings because the readings are all calling us to follow Christ and to keep God's law. Um, but they all have an emphasis on humility. Hmm. So we have to be humble. And um, if we remember that it's only always by God's grace that we're able to do anything, then we can be humble. Hmm. Yeah, it's good. I think there's that that idea of humility um, that we may see uh, continuing forward. So yeah, with that in mind, um, let us go into the epistle at this point. So the epistle appointed is... Uh, from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. So this is, if you're familiar with the book of Ephesians, you know that there's kind of two halves to uh, Ephesians. There's a more kind of doctrinal side, uh, which is perhaps chapters 1, 2, and, and 3 is a bit of a transition there, but still you got some doctrine there. Four is where it begins to get into the moral exhortative section. So it makes sense during Trinity that, that that's where we're, we're going to read from and hear the Apostle Paul's um, exhortations. He urges the Ephesian Christians that they walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So those are the substantial uh, ideas in terms of the uh, what the Ephesian Christians are being called to. And he does begin with humility or lowliness and meekness. Mm -hmm. So that's where he starts um, as, as that initial virtue. So as the collect humbled us by reminding us of our need and continual dependence um, on God's grace at all times <laughs> to do anything good or, or, or worthwhile. Um, so the, the uh, epistle begins with the idea of lowliness and meekness, but then it enumerates those other virtues as well, which pertain to how we treat one another uh, in the church, I think, in particular. So long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 
Um, so uh, living together in that kind of peaceable way and and not uh, being prone to be seeking one's own or uh, disturbing uh, others or you're taking offense at one another. Uh, this is the the good that we are called to. And I always thought it was interesting that it says endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit uh, in the bond of peace. You know, that word um, for for keep, you know, it's implying that, that, that it's already there. There is this unity of the spirit and, and, and we are to guard it and, and protect it and preserve it. So right. we're not actually affecting that unity, but we're wanting to recognize it, live in light of it and, and, and keep it. Um, so I think there's yeah. a kind of living out of the truth of, of what we already are and have been given in Christ. Yeah. Also notice um, vocation. That word is uh, basically paralleled. In English, you have vocation at the beginning and then towards the end, which we didn't read yet, but it says, uh, as you are called in one hope of your calling. So uh, walk worthy of your vocation and then um, keep the hope of your calling. So vocation, calling. Um, the walk shows that you'll be worthy, you know, the appropriate way uh, for the calling. Um, and that is characterized yeah, lowliness, meekness, patience, forbearing, um, keeping unity. So preserving um, a relationship with others. Um, and you don't get an emphasis here on um, assertion, strongness, domination. It's the opposite. It's, you know, hey, it's going to be hard. You're going to have challenges. There's going to be people around you that are challenging to you. Um, but nevertheless, um, bear with them, be patient, be lowly. Um, that would be the worthy walk. And then the hope of the calling is God himself. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> um, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, uh, who is above all and through all and in you all. Mm. So so the bond of peace, um, that's the the unity we have, rather, that we should be keeping peaceably is actually the unity of the Spirit. Mm. So uh, you can think of John 17, Jesus asking for us to be one as he and the Father is one. Well, that's most fulfilled in the fact that we all share the same Holy Spirit. Um, and then this reference to uh, baptism, I think, is connected with that because we have the name of the Lord, uh, we have the faith that we're baptized into, and then the, the God, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, is also the name we're baptized into. So um, because we're put into God and He's in us, we're unified. And uh, that is the the hope of the calling. And so we walk in a way of unity. Hmm. That's good. And, of course, um, last week we had the end of Ephesians chapter 3. So, you know, just once again, we are going more or less sequentially uh, through Paul's epistles here at the end of Trinity season, with one exception that will be coming up. Um, in addition to the Sunday next before Advent, which is, you know, Jeremiah preparing us for Advent. But so, but uh, yeah, this is an instance where it is right after one another. So we just had last week that uh, wonderful prayer, which, um, you know, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven on earth is named, and, and praying that we would um, have Christ dwell in our hearts by faith, that we'd be strengthened by the Spirit for this to happen, and that we'd be filled with all the fullness of God. And we come right into this, and it, it, it mentions there's one God and Father of us all who is above all, through all, and in you all. And we've been given um, uh, this uh, unity of the Spirit. So it's um, relating these things to what came before, um, you know, can be good. So, yeah, a lot of Trinity for Trinity season. <laughs> yes. Oh, definitely. Um, so, yeah, that reminds us that uh, the Trinity is not merely a doctrine to be, um, you know, to kind of scratch our heads at, um, which is, is sometimes how even Trinity Sunday is, is, is pictured. 
But um, but Trinity season reminds us this is about being caught up by the triune God in uh, in His life, in His salvation, and as He works that out in us. So, um, yeah, there's a lot here uh, that you could go off of, but. Uh, yeah, initially I left off the whole verses four to to six, just to say verses one to three are where you get the uh, the exhortations and the virtues listed, and then verses four through six seem to be, um, you know, how might we put it, the ground uh, or or motivation or, or, or source of our power for for doing this, maybe, you know, elaborating on what that unity of the spirit uh, is rooted in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's sort of the idea of hope is uh, a future thing. So walk this way because this is where you're going. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is this is where you're eventually going to be. So start being like that now. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think that's good. And it, it does take us back, even if we're thinking of Ephesians, it takes us back, I think, to chapter 2, where chapter 2, 1 through 10, that's, you know, pretty well known in the Christian world. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, you know, but then God made you alive with Christ by grace, even saved through faith. But the end of chapter two is where that then is applied to the church in terms of, you know, we're created in Christ for good works, which God hath ordained that we should walk in them. And then the end of chapter two talks about how, um, uh, how Gentiles and Israel have been made one in Christ and how there's no division between us. We are both reconciled to God and one body through the cross. And through him, we both have access by one spirit to the father. And so we're fellow citizens. Um, house, we're all members of the household of God being built as a holy temple uh, in which uh, the spirit of God dwells. Um, and so there is this, uh, you know, even emphasis in Ephesians on the reality of the church as this unified body of Christ, you know, made up of Jews and Gentiles and all kinds of, you know, people who are made new together and together made into this holy temple. So um, as we think about mm-hmm. living out our our lives and walking worthily, um, maybe we jump straight to how do we walk in this world? But uh, intriguingly, at least in Ephesians, Paul begins with how do we live with one another in this household? Yeah. And um, also, I was thinking the idea that we're bound together by the Spirit and God is filling us up, uh, that will also tie into this idea of God's grace being before and after us. Hmm. You know, because if, if He's in us, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he, He's in everybody who's a believer and He's filling us all up, then all that we do is, is, is actually God working yeah. and doing in us. Yeah above all, through all, and all. Um, and and also the idea of the unity of the Spirit is already there. We're, we're just endeavoring to keep it. So, like, God's work is already there uh, prior yeah. to us. And, um, and yeah, you have that reference at the end uh, to, to God being above all, through all, and in all. And then it immediately goes into, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Like, that's the very next verse. Not included, but still, that's where the text goes. And so even just relating that to grace. so Right, yeah. And this shows you another aspect of Trinity season, that the, uh, the life of sanctification is, is based on and in some ways is a continuing action of the Trinity, mm-hmm. who God is, uh, how God exists. Uh, he sort of overflows into his people and then works in and through them yeah. so that they are an extension of his work. Yeah. That's good. I'm tempted to say, thinking a little bit more about, you know, this is the great, let's walk in the good work section, but that transition ends up focusing so much, at least for the Ephesians, on how they should live as the people of God in their conduct toward one another. You know, it, it reminds me a little bit of the principle that you hear applied to, uh, you know, pastors and church officers that um, uh, that it's required of them to rule their household well, to kind of show that they can then uh, rule in the church of God. That principle, I've heard it put in terms of godliness begins at the home. And you kind of, that's where you should see it. And then 
when it's evident there, then you're given the broader responsibility potentially in the church if you're called to ministry. But we need to see it in the home first, and then it goes to the church. But it's interesting maybe to apply something similar even just to the church in general, like godliness begins at the home, and then from there we could say it goes out to the church. It affects just how do we live together as the people of God in our community as the church. And then and then it goes out from there even further into living before the world. You know, it seems like mm. there's a bit of a yeah. uh, movement outwards um, that we could detect. So, but yeah, I think that's, um, there's a lot there uh, that, that could be preached on or emphasized, but certainly noticing um, these connections, uh, the connections to humility at right at the beginning in verse two, and then with um, our, our our dependence on God's grace, with God as the Father of all, above all, through all, and in all. I think we can go to the gospel at this point. So the gospel is going to be Luke fourteen, and so in this section of scripture, Jesus is in the house of a chief Pharisee to eat bread on the Sabbath day. So it's the context of um, essentially a, 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 a banquet, um, a, a dinner, a feast being had. And it's a Sabbath day feast as well. So that's the setting in which um, verses 1 through 11 occur and what goes on after the, uh, verse 11 ends, which is not part of the assigned reading. And so... It begins with a kind of Sabbath dispute that there was a certain man there who had what the KJV calls the dropsy. Um, and Jesus uh, uses this to, to ask the lawyers and Pharisees a question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And they held their peace. They don't answer at this point. And Jesus performs the healing, uh, lets him go, and then asks them, which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him again to these things. So you get the sense this is not Jesus's first time uh, giving this sort of teaching to the Pharisees. Um, and uh, it, it's kind of depending on a broader context in which he's already been um, kind of challenging them for uh, what they are teaching about what observing the Sabbath means as far as what you can do or not do. Uh, but then it goes forward from there. J- Jesus gives a parable uh, about humility. That um, if, if if you are, um, well, he notices how um, those who are attending even this feast at the Pharisee's house are choosing the chief rooms or the chief seats and the places of honor. Um, and he ends up telling them this parable: if if you're invited uh, to go to a wedding don't sit in the highest room or the most honored place. Um, sit in the lowest place so that when the master comes, he won't tell you to, to, to go down to a lower place because you took a place that was too high for you, but rather he'll tell you to come up. And then he says, for whoever exalteth himself shall be abased and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. So uh, yeah, he calls that a parable. So there's a I think a deeper teaching there is not just advice for when you go to people's feasts, but it's uh, working on another level. Uh, so we can maybe, you know, that's kind of a summary here. Uh, what should we see? What should we notice, you know, going on here, Stephen? Yeah, this was a week that um, definitely was challenging um, if you're just immediately um immediately trying to find the connections, trying to see what is going on here um, with the other readings. But I think it's um, a bit easier to understand when you compare it to other weeks in Trinity. So um, it's a healing passage. Well, there's been so many healings in Trinity, and they, that will continue to go on. So um, showing the connection between, um, you know, the work of Christ and our sanctification and our holiness, but also uh, the work of Christ in restoring all things. So he's healing this man. Uh, dropsy, if anyone's curious, I just did a quick search to make sure I understood what it was. I wasn't going to say uh, I don't a, know, but thank you, Stephen. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's a sort of inflammation where there's a lot of fluid buildup and swelling 
that's what uh, it's considered to be, at least today. Uh, that could be a general term for, you know, boils and goiters and any kind of things. But basically, large swelling uh, by fluids. Um, and so he's healed that way. So it's a healing story. But you've also got these Pharisees who, who don't like it. They want to find fault with Jesus. So he healed on the Sabbath. And so Jesus has to then teach them the, the true meaning of the Sabbath. It's better to, to do good, um, you know, rather obey than to sacrifice, as we may have heard earlier. Uh, it's better to do good on the Sabbath, to heal as lawful on the Sabbath. Um, so that's a it's it's a correcting an external legalistic understanding. Um, and then there's this parable about humility. And if you thought that that sounded like something we've already heard in Trinity, um, you're correct. Back on the 11th Sunday, we had a parable about um, the rich man and the mm. publican, or sorry, the Pharisee and the publican. And that parable ended by saying, everyone yeah. that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humble himself shall be exalted. So so we're reinforcing <laughs> past Trinity themes here. That's a big part of this reading. Um, now, how do the two relate to each other even within this yeah. text? That's kind of interesting, right? Um, what's going on with healing of a dropsy man and the Pharisees taking umbrage at that and then um, properly humble at a feast— what you know? How did those things come together? Um, maybe the Pharisees are thinking too highly of themselves. <laughs> you know, they're they're self righteous and wanting yeah. to level charges against others because they don't actually understand their true position. Hmm. Um, so if we have an understanding of our sinfulness, then we'll be humble. And understanding of God's grace is that he exalts those who don't really deserve it. He, he exalts the humble. Um, but, of course, if we don't have that godly humility, then we will actually be further abased, uh, judged, and disgraced. Uh, so maybe maybe there's a connection there. Um, and then tie that to the collect. You know, we need to remind ourselves right. it's always of God's grace that we can That's do anything good. good. I think also, um, and again, if, keeping if we in mind that, then we'll be, the epistle uh, focus is on exalting ourselves um, kind of fundamentally and not seeing um, how we are treating Christ. one another. Uh, especially in the church, and then viewing the gospel as continuing that theme. So how are the how are the Pharisees treating this brother of theirs who has the dropsy, um, right? And the idea of healing him, um, are they rightly caring for and 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 showing you know love towards this brother if they're saying you know. Not on the Sabbath. You have to do it on another day, which sounds very spiritual, right? Like, it sounds like, wow, you really care about God. Uh, uh, but Jesus points out um, that, well, if you have an uh, ass or an ox who's fallen into a pit, you would pull them out on the Sabbath day. Like, he searches their hearts. He knows they would make exceptions in the case of necessity. And Jesus is saying, well, how can't you view your brother uh, who who is in need uh, as an exception, you know, as well? Um, aren't works of mercy um, allowable on the Sabbath? And so I think implicit here is, yes, it's, it's wrapped up in the guise and terminology of religion, um, the, the Pharisees' objection, that is, to healing um, on the Sabbath. But underlying it is... Um, hypocrisy, for one, which always implies a, a bit of pride there and a lack of humility, but also a lack of understanding of what the day is even for. It's a day of, 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 of worship and rest. And, um, you know, relating those together, it is lawful to give rest <laughs> on the Sabbath day. Um, so, I, yeah, yeah, I think you could see that being related just in terms of it has to do with how we treat one another. And then with verses 7 to 11, the occasion for it is Jesus, you know, he marked how they chose out the chief rooms or the the highest places. Um, 
he's noticing that, you know, as, as they're at the feast, uh, they're, you know, weaving in and out of conversations, you know, slyly making their way to the, the place of honor, the higher up seats, uh, trying to get the best for themselves. Right. And that too, um, is a matter of, um, not showing humility and in a sense, putting yourself in a very vivid, clear way ahead of others. Um, and yeah, in the Sabbath, uh, we forget this um, because we're detached from the, the festal life of Israel, but the Sabbath would have mm. been a feast, um, and there would have been a, a communal meal mm. element at some point. So, yeah, the wedding feast is a direct parallel or analogy mm. to the Sabbath. Yeah, um, so I think of, like, just that is really important to see that, yeah, this is a Sabbath day feast, so it's kind of ground zero for how are the people of God relating to one another. <laughs> and what we have is like, don't heal them. It's not the right day for that. And we have people who are like, I'm going to get the best seat for myself. So we have a lack of humility, a lack of love, and, and not really Ephesians 4 happening here. And, and that's what Jesus is addressing. Right. And boy, you can imagine a lot of parallels. At one hand, you can look at this and see it's so comical. Like, come on, anybody really that crass that they would, um, instead of rejoicing at a healing, they'd start criticizing the guy. But actually, yeah, you know, <laughs> modern people today, they can miss the whole point of a religious service. Uh, you know, worship event. Um, th they can miss the fact that God is demonstrating his power and his saving work. Um, and then they just start criticizing, uh, nitpicking the, the theology, nitpicking the the manner of how people are going about it. Um, you know, they're they're missing missing the goal because they're so focused on the means, and they've illegitimately prioritized something that it's good in its place. You know, in its context, it's right, but then they sort of make that ultimate and miss the fact that it was supposed to lead you to right. something greater. Yeah. So I think there's a continuing danger of of um, of externalism, relying on the externals without having the real uh, internal reality of of caring so much about straining out the nets, you know, that you swallow a camel, as Jesus says, um, and and you neglect the weightier matters of the law, uh, mercy, you know, justice and truth. Um, you you mentioned the verbal parallel with the. Pharisee and the tax collector from a few Sundays back. He that humbleth, or whoever exalteth himself shall be abased. He that humbleth himself shall be exalted. It seems to me you could put those together, and I think notice um, it going in two different directions in terms of the, the emphasis of the Pharisee and the tax collector from a few Sundays ago had more to do with, um, with uh, exalting yourself above others before God. Um, and this one, maybe we could see as exalting yourself above others before man, like at this feast. Um, and yeah, yeah. And in, in the church, in, in, yeah, the in the church assembly. on the festal day, even on that day. Um, but yeah, I mean, both are before God in the sense of it's in the eyes of God and it's a spiritual offense to God. But I think the Pharisee and the tax collector, it's more direct. It's more a matter of I'm, thank you, God, I'm more superior than these other guys. You know, that's exalting yourself spiritually directly to God um, and before God. Whereas here, it has more to do with, I want the place of honor here before men. I want men to, you know, maybe more of an emphasis on that this week than in previous week, but, but certainly a lot of similarity as well. Yeah. And I also want to mention a conversation I was having with uh, Sam Bray at my church he pointed out that starting this week in Trinity, um, and the following weeks will continue this, there are there's subtle little hints of Advent. <laughs> um, and so this shows you the Trinity season. It's not just a, a, a random season or a, or a sort of a non-season, like ordinary time, like we're, we're not doing the cycle anymore. Um, it's, it's slowly turning us and getting us ready to think about Advent. And so this gospel reading would be a case in point. The, um, the marriage feast, uh, well, that's an eschatological image. And it says, you don't want to, to be too prideful, because then when the one who called you, when he comes, 
uh, he might ask you to, to, to give mm. up that seat. <laughs> so there's that, that mm. coming and judgment. Um, and then that idea of reversal, uh, the exalted are made low, the lower raised up. Uh, that's mm. a, you know, it's a Magnificat theme. That's, that's a coming of the Messiah kind of theme. That, that's an Advent right. theme. So, so this week in Trinity is just kind of dropping that into our mind so that uh, a few more weeks down as we go mm. along, it'll really be starting right. to spring up. Yeah, the, the coming of the Master of the Feast, um, preparing us for, for Advent and, and the great reversal. Yeah, I do like how there is in the 1662 BCP, there's, there's transition t- t- times, you know, rarely is... Is it just a stark, you know, you were in this season, now you're in this season, you know, there's usually a few Sundays uh, easing, you know, the tracks to where it, it, it smoothly goes into that next one, so... Yeah, and yeah. integrating them together so that you see that this is all, you know, there's distinctions, different emphases, which are important, but they, they all support each other. They right. lead you to one another. That's um, good. Yeah. Great. Well, we'll have to keep our eyes and ears open in future weeks for more anticipations of Advent as we get nearer and nearer. Um, but clearly, it, it it very clearly leads there because the Sunday next before Advent is, uh, you know, Jeremiah, a prophecy about the Lord coming and being our righteousness. And that's, you know, rare to have an Old Testament reading given in place of the epistle. So it's clearly going there. And even before then, we might start to see some anticipation. So... That's good. Now, um, we are continuing in Ezekiel as far as the first lessons go. Um, Last week, we had Ezekiel 2 and Ezekiel 13, emphasis on true prophet versus false prophet. Uh, This week, we have Ezekiel 14 and Ezekiel 18. And um, so Ezekiel 14 is following right on the heels of Ezekiel 13, the Evensong first lesson from last week. but as we look at chapter 14, look at chapter 18, both of these chapters are related uh, in a number of ways, we might be able to say. Um, uh, so I think a common theme between both chapters is this idea of being judged for what you personally have done and not relying on what someone else has done. That'll be a theme in both. Um, but but chapter 14 also has an additional element in the beginning. So Stephen, would you like to to kind of summarize for us and, and, and get into chapter 14. Yeah, so chapter, as you mentioned, 13 was emphasizing false prophets. Now with 14, um, it, it focuses on the elders of Israel. So these might be uh, civil leaders, kind of tribal heads. Not that they're not uh, also religious; those worlds are intersected, but they're not they're not clergy per se. Um, but the elders come before um, the Lord uh, through the prophet, and they're judged, and they're judged for having idols. <laughs> and the Lord says, um, you know, they took idols into their hearts. Should I let myself be consulted by them? So it's, uh, why, why should I listen to these elders? Why should I hear their counsel? Or why should I hear their complaints and their criticisms? <laughs> uh, you know, they've been unfaithful. They've taken in idols. Um, and then God moves on. He calls them to repent. And um, he says anyone who, who separates himself from idols uh, will be accepted by me, um, even even foreigners, you know, even even Gentiles, I would I would love to have, um, and I will answer truthfully through through my prophet to those people. Um, but uh, any who keep their idols will be judged and destroyed. And then that leads on to a prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem, which is coming. So uh, God's saying, if you would repent then I would speak to you through my prophets and you could be could be saved. But uh, if you harbor this hardness in your heart and continue to go after other gods, uh, you'll be judged and destroyed. Yeah. So there is this emphasis on idolatry, which 
on one, you know, on the one hand, it does seem to be a shift of focus from the other readings and, and prayers so far. Idolatry has not really been a, a focus. Instead, there's been a focus more on how we relate to one another. So I think in that regard, you know, there's a bit of a weaker link when it comes to Ezekiel 14 and the other readings. Um, well, but I think you could tie it to the false religiosity. So, you know, here these elders are coming to try to do some sort of um, counsel, like, you know, hey, God, you've got to listen to us because we're, mm -hmm. we're your people. <laughs> um, but God says, I don't, I don't have to listen to you because you're mm. false. So, so I think even though the nature of the sin is different, I think you can see a parallel with the elders hmm. and the Pharisees. Okay, yeah. No, I see that. Um, so, you know, they're coming to the prophet. They're going to the right person. They're wanting to inquire of the Lord as though they really follow him, but they don't follow him. And they shouldn't expect the Lord's just going to answer him like everything's fine because it's not. Um, and so, yeah, maybe we could say the Pharisees, even though their sin was more subtle, uh, uh, more of a attempt to justify it than could possibly be given probably by these guys who are, you know, worshiping idols straight mm -hmm. up. Um, but, uh, still at, at root, they're in the same place. If, if we come before God, um, and, and our, and our pretenses aren't right, or we're seeking other things, um, uh, than what we should be, then we're in a similar position as these. And, you know, the Lord says, should I, yeah. Should I be inquired at all of them? Uh, no. And so some things we learn here too is that he says they set up their idols in their heart. So there's this idea of the heart as the place where you're setting up your idols, not just some place in your home or, or wherever it may be that you go to worship. You've taken them into your heart. So like I, I, idolatry being kind of um, viewed as a heart issue Uh is here and then also that creating a separation you're creating a separation between me god and you by taking these idols into your hearts so i think those are two really key ideas to mm -hmm. see how um, how idolatry is something that our heart does fundamentally and when we do that and that can take that itself can take a variety of forms i mean that's to where i think that's part of what's behind the apostle Paul saying covetousness is idolatry, right? Because it, it is a taking into your heart of something and elevating it uh, above its proper station, essentially making a God out of it. Um, yeah. Could Absolutely. be ultimately maybe traced back to this idea of the heart component of idolatry, but then yeah, it creates the separation between God. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, don't blame God for that. <laughs> blame yourself, repent and turn from your sins. So, Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the, now the second half of this chapter, it's got a real fascinating feature. Two different places, verse 14 verse 20. God says, even if, and he names three people, Noah, Daniel, and Job, even if these three men were in your land, um, they would only deliver their own lives by their righteousness— they wouldn't be able to uh, deliver yeah. the land. So so God would not spare the land because of these three yeah. men. Now, I think this is really interesting for a couple of reasons. One, as you said, this is going to be a point of connection with the, the second uh, of the Old Testament lesson. So we'll, we'll put a pin on that. Uh, representative righteousness, you could say. Um, but also the choice of these guys is fascinating. Noah, okay get that. He's righteous. He's an eschatological kind of figure. Um, the world is destroyed, but you know, only Noah and his family are delivered. Um, Job, well, I guess Job's a real person. <laughs> I guess Job was a historic individual um, because he's listed here as a potential uh, sort of federal head or representative of the land. And um, but, well, I was just going to say, in the story of Job, was that? Uh, you know, he's righteous, obviously, at the start, and he's committed at the end. And he's the one God said, God tells Job's friends, you've done wrong. Go tell Job to pray for you. And then I'll, <laughs> you know, then I'll forgive you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. 
Yeah, and he makes the sacrifices yeah. for his kids too. That's right. So, yeah, he's a he's a national kind mm-hmm. of priest of sorts. He prays for all these other people. Um, so even <laughs> if he was here, yeah. I wouldn't wouldn't deliver the land. Um, and then in the middle, yeah. Daniel. Now that may not be as striking to a modern reader at first blush, but remember, this is the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel and Daniel are essentially contemporaries. Uh, you know, these these books are happening around the same time. The big difference, of course, is Ezekiel is within the Israelite community. You know, the worshippers, and Daniel is within the Babylonian mm-hmm. community. Daniel's advisor to Nebuchadnezzar. Um, I mean, he's right there with Nebuchadnezzar when Nebuchadnezzar is doing all of his Babylonian conquering. <laughs> so for him to be named as one of these three ultra righteous champions by yes. Ezekiel, yeah, it takes you back it's to pretty interesting. Um, I've heard this discussed by Alistair Roberts and others. I think. In terms of Elijah in the time of Ahab and Jezebel, there was Elijah who was kind of the prophet out in the wilderness and, you know, saying the prophetic things, getting, you know, risking his life. But then there was the other prophet who, or or the other at least righteous person who was in the king's courts and he was secretly hiding prophets. And so there's, um, I actually forgot his name, but there's, okay, Obadiah, yeah. So there's that dynamic of, you know, some may stand outside the corrupt system and and Mm -hmm. be all, you know prophetic calling it out in very explicit ways others may be within it trying to work for good and it may have to be a little bit more under wraps but you know and, and the struggle for them is going to be not compromising while they're in there so but yeah right the prophet yeah. and he's a prophet so obadiah is being prophetic in his low-key, careful, uh, nuanced ministry. Um, absolutely, really important. Uh, there are prophets who um, advise the king, mm-hmm. and then there are right. prophets who critique yeah. the king. So, and Daniel's certainly willing to do both. You read the book of Daniel, and you'll see his, his faithfulness You know, from chapter 1 onwards, even in his diet and, um, and, and so forth, um, in worshiping God even when uh, it's, it's forbidden and... Um, but the other thing I think that makes Daniel a good candidate to bring up is uh, I think Daniel 9 is his, you know, great prayer of confession on behalf of the people pleading with the Lord for mercy. And then Daniel's given visions and response. And um, so I think that also may be part of why he's included here alongside Noah and Job in his intercessory role and um, the uh, response that he's given and the visions of the future he's given, I would imagine, went out quickly among the exiles and you know that's probably how ezekiel well well, we're surmising but yeah damn (laughs) yeah and uh but ezekiel's point here is these three men as great as they are um right they can't intercede and prevent god's judgment it's going to have to be each individual israelite truly repenting and coming to the Lord. That's mm. that's the only thing they can can do at this point. Um, and, in, and there's a sort of right. general context saying, and, and that's not going to happen. Uh, you know, Jerusalem yes. is going to be destroyed. So uh, that's pretty fascinating. Um, it's like at the national level, the Lord's determined it's going to happen. So there comes a point where God in his sovereignty, he determines he's going to bring the judgment. Even Josiah couldn't stop it too, right? We read that a few weeks ago. So and neither can these men. When the Lord is truly determined they're yeah. going to his sovereign purpose, then it it's going to happen. Um, but that's not to say, you know, they would still deliver their own lives. And anyone who is righteous would deliver their own life from this. Because um, it's always the case that if you if you repent of your sins and and yep. follow God, then you will be spared from His wrath. Even if you do end up, you know, dying, you won't perish. You know, you you you've died the death of the righteous. Um, so, um, but yeah, at the national level, it's it, it's going to happen. Yet, verse twenty two, therein shall be left a remnant. So even that, it's not going to be. Um, an absolute devastation there will be a remnant there will be those who come forth and um and uh so you see the mercy of god even in the allowance of a remnant so um he's talking about the national level here this judgment is going to happen at the national level Mm, yeah Um, that's not to exclude a remnant or uh, individuals being delivered Mm -hmm. 
And then I guess this takes us straight to the, the next reading, chapter 18, um, and I think helps explain 18 better because um, Ezekiel 18 is often pulled out of context uh, to try to be um, a rebuttal to the doctrine of original sin, or maybe um, covenantal headship that the the children are affected by the fathers, um, because Ezekiel 18 has uh, the line in there where um, God says um, that you know no longer will the sons be judged for the sins of the fathers, uh, the soul whose sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So um, you'll encounter that a lot in isolation, um, but it needs to be read in context of Ezekiel. So what Ezekiel is saying is, you know, um, that has actually been the case sometimes. we People are judged because of what others have done. I mean, isn't that how Israel's getting into the situation multi-generationally, right? <laughs> um, but now, um, now that God's judgment is coming in this particular way, um, it, it, it's kind of too late for all of that you know, on a one-to-one -one basis. You're all going to be judged for yourself. Um, so similar to what we were just talking about. But then there's also the reversal of that, that each individual person in this situation still has uh, the opportunity and the chance to repent. Because it also says, if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he's committed uh, and keeps my statutes, what is just and right, he shall surely live. Uh, and then we get these great passages, you know, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Um, the Lord Lord doesn't take pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. Uh, so turn, <laughs> repent, uh, turn and live. So this is really kind of an evangelistic passage or, you know, a general uh, call to all people. Um, you know, yes, the Lord's judgment is here. It's it's on. Uh, everyone now is being um, experiencing a common fate. Um, and it's not because of this guy or that guy. Um, like on, on your eternal level, it's going to be how do you respond to this? What are you as individual doing? Um, you can repent and be saved. Hmm. I think that's great. Yeah. What a powerful passage. Um, and so one thing to notice too, I mentioned how, you know, in, in regard to the specific sin committed, there's a bit more of a difference in, in chapter 14 and in the epistle gospel, um, with the emphasis on idolatry. Although we do see that, that, um, likeness with regard to the, uh, reliance on externals and, and kind of, yeah, coming before God's prophet, like everything's okay. Like, like I'm for God on the Sabbath while you're vying for the best seats and forbidding healings. Um, <clears throat> so there are those things, but still, um, you know, idolatry is the main thing in chapter 14. Well, here in chapter 18, it, it does broaden out and it's not just idolatry, which is zeroed in on, uh, in verses six through nine. Um, he, he describes kind of the just, what do they do? Um, and it says, you know, hath not eaten upon the mountains, neither hath lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel. But then it goes on to describe more, man-to-man sins. Neither hath defiled his neighbor's wife, neither hath come near to mistress woman, and hath not oppressed any, but hath restored to the debtor his pledge, hath spoiled none by violence, hath given his bread to the hungry, hath covered the naked with a garment. Uh, he that hath not given forth upon usury, neither taken any increase, and that hath withdrawn his hand from iniquity, hath executed true judgment between man and man. So there we see more of a um, emphasis on this gets worked out in your life and how you relate to one another and especially the people of God. And that takes us back to um, more of the focus of the uh, specific virtues and sins of the epistle and gospel. So just to kind of point that out as well, supplementing mm -hmm. what you're saying. Yeah, this could pair with the epistle, you know, the way you should be walking, um, yeah, the particular um, sanctification guide. Mm -hmm. Right. So... But yeah, that powerful call uh, to to repent, that the Lord does not have pleasure in the death of the wicked, that, you know, even though Israel's going through these great, terrible acts of national judgment and, you know, being displaced as a people, it's, it's not as though the Lord is delighting in bringing this about. He does not delight in judgment or in 
or in uh, the death of the wicked, you know, as a thing in itself, but rather he he delights in uh, repentance and he delights in showing mercy, uh, abounding mm-hmm. in steadfast love to all who call upon him. So uh, a powerful text, if you were to preach this, certainly, I mean, it'll preach. <laughs> Uh, yeah, absolutely. In verse 25, really interesting too, um, yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. Hmm. So so Israel, the covenant people, turning their judgment against God, accusing him of being unrighteous. And so he essentially challenges them. Well, let, let's see, you know, yeah. let, let's measure your works and let, let's see if I am judging them rightly or not. Hmm. Um, and so that, that also ties into the humility theme. <laughs> yeah. Um, don't don't be prideful and start accusing God of wrongdoing and think that you can stand the judgment, um, but actually be be really honest. And what what are we going to find if God does uh, look at you with total exacting justice? Yeah, absolutely. I've been reading recently C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces, um, and. I can't help but see connections in these Old Testament readings. Uh, back in 14, there's that whole, um, you know, you're coming before the Lord. I want to inquire of the Lord. I want to hear from God. And it's like, but you are you have these idols in your hearts. You're, you're not going to hear from God. You've created this distance between you and God. And that's, you know, that's a theme in that book. And then here as well, this whole, like, Till We Have Faces is written as one woman's complaint against the gods and saying basically they're, unjust they're treating us unfairly but in the end it's no you've been you, you've been sinning <laughs> and that's essentially what's going on here so yeah. if, to any listeners who've read that that's a free connection to <laughs> to bring into play um mm-hmm. one more thing i've noticed the end of ezekiel 18 um uh you know where it ends repent turn yourselves from all your transgressions so iniquity shall not be your ruin Cast away from you all your transgressions, whereby you have transgressed, and make you a new heart and new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? You know, I wonder how that sounds to people. You know, make yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Hmm. Well, that's hard. I mean, I kind of have to have a heart to do that, or a spirit to even do that, right? And I think a command like this really emphasizes there's a heart change component here that we are reliant upon the grace of God for. And I think that takes us right back to the collect, you know, your right. grace, may it go before us, prevent us that we may have this and then continue right. with us and follow us uh, elsewhere in Ezekiel. He'll explicitly say the spirit of God is the one who gives life to the dead and will, you, you know, take out the heart of stone and give a heart of flesh. How can you make a new heart for yourself? It- you know, it's, it's a paradox. It's um, it's actually not such a different question from uh, Nicodemus. You know, how can a man be born again when yeah. he's old? <laughs> right. Um, how, how am I getting myself a new heart? Um, yeah. Well, you can't, but <laughs> the spirits of God can through you, right? So not apart from his grace, not apart from That's his right. grace preventing and continuing and following. And this is the message that the Pharisees are going to have to hear, that they've got to be made low, they've got to be humble. In fact, they got to die. they got to die to themselves, mm-hmm. and then God will raise them up again. Die before you die. There's no chance afterwards. There you go. There's a free free quote free. as well from Till We Have Faces. <laughs> all right. <laughs> That's very good. Well, I think this has all been great. I think there's a lot to see here. And, you know, I came into this thinking this is a weaker Sunday as far as connections go, but by the end of it, I'm thinking, no, it's still pretty strong, <laughs> actually. Yeah, no, it works. I think, yeah, again, it's it's a general sort of theme in, in some senses, uh, but once you read all of the passages that are selected and use them together, yeah, it really does give you a pretty good uh, yeah. finished product. Uh, this is the importance of keeping the unity of this lectionary. Yeah, if you if you yeah. didn't have those Old Testament readings, you know, you're only doing epistle gospel, you, you could still do something, but it'll, it'd be a little bit thinner. Um, but then if you separated the collect, you know, from the epistle gospel readings, as unfortunately some newer uh, lectionaries have done, um, then you'd really be stuck. Like yeah. you would just be scratching your head. So yeah, you've got to have the connection with them all, and then you see what's going on. And yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, a lot, a lot of material here to preach on and to think about. Yes. So let us keep the unity of the BCP in the bond of the lectionary, and yeah. Well. But, 
<laughs> yes, and uh, at least, uh, yeah, use it to keep the larger unity of the Spirit as we serve God together. Yes. Yeah. Amen. Well, very well. Well, thank you for joining us, listeners. If you enjoyed this and were profited by it, uh, do feel free to share and, and even give us a rating on iTunes if you'd like. Uh, we are um, your hosts. I'm Clayton Hutchins. And I've been joined by Stephen Wedgworth, as always. And we thank you for joining us, and we hope that you'll tune in next week.